The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So one of the things we've been doing on this retreat is practicing using the teachings as a refuge, something that uh, brings clarity and peace, safety, real safety to the heart. And, uh, of course, the interesting thing that we find in the teachings of the Buddha, that grasping the teaching or any belief or any view whatsoever doesn't make us safe. It actually makes us unsafe. Whatever opinion we cling to, whatever view we cling to, it, it, we the heart immediately feels vulnerable, right? Because the heart's immediately vulnerable to the opposite point of view or the opposite thought. So the way to use these teachings isn't to cling to them, right? That's sort of the standard joke and religious circles is that, you know, instead of following the teachings of the Buddha or the teachings of Jesus Christ or the teachings of any wise person, we want to identify like, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist, I'm part of this church, I'm part of Calm Ground Meditation Community. And we get in this whole world of views and we dispute those with different views. And in many ways, in this set of teachings that we've been looking at, the Buddha talks about how it's the source of all quarrels, all the wars, all the disputes, all the hatred. And this is as true in Buddhist circles as it is in any other circles. You know, we have this in politics. We have it in terms of well, basically everything. Even within the retreat setting, that was a good set. I'm sure of it. Or that was a bad set. I'm sure of it. I'm the worst meditator in the bunch. I'm the best meditator in the bunch. That person doesn't have a clue. Do you see how they're walking? Or do you see how they're sitting? Doesn't have a clue. In general Buddhist circles, there's often subtle and not so subtle ways that different traditions put down the other traditions. You know, Vipassana, insight meditation is really the only authentic expression of the Buddhist teachings. Some version of that, or this is the fast way. Sure, you can practice those other ways, but if you want to get to peace quickly, this is the way. And it sounds fu- sort of funny to say that, but you really hear this. <laughs> and if you look at different books and different teachings and in various ways, people are making these claims all the time. Basically, some more refined version of my God's bigger than your God. So watch out. And so it's no wonder you know, the world looks the way that it does. It's interesting, you know, we, I've been talking about this collection that Gil wrote this recent book on, The Buddha Before Buddhism, Gil Fransdahl, wonderful teacher from the West Coast. And it's this uh, collection, The Book of Eights, it's called, and uh, people consider it to be one of the early, earlier collection of teachings, of verses that the nuns and monks and lay people used brought to mind, like we're doing, bringing it to mind to help keep the practice alive in our day-to-day life, in our meditation times, walking periods. How do we remember what we're doing? So we're not just walking and letting our mind spin in ways that it always spins, or sitting, because remember, sitting is an ideal form for practicing delusion. I mean, It's the best posture for worrying, for lusting, I mean, for basically doing all the things our mind normally does, worrying, planning, comparing. 
So just because we're sitting or walking doesn't mean we're practicing. It's just the outward form, but what's really important is the what the mind is doing and how the mind is remembering or sort of remembering to reframe or to understand what this what we can do with this life we can use this moment we can use this time on retreat to see or to understand what we're not seeing and understanding otherwise we tend to live within our bubbles seeing things according to the bubble we're living within the views that we're clinging to the ideas and beliefs that we have until you know the evidence is so overwhelming that we have to abandon the bubble, the view, but we immediately grab onto another one. Because we don't, we talked about this in one of the small groups today, it doesn't seem possible to live without the view. There's a very famous teaching Vachagata on fire. Vachagata is the name of a person at the time of the Buddha. And this wanderer, he wasn't a, a monk, a practitioner, a disciple of the Buddha, but he went to the Buddha and asked him some question. How is it, Master Gotama? Gotama is the family name of the Buddha. Um, how is it? Uh, does he, do you hold the view the cosmos is eternal? Only this is true. All other, anything else is worthless. And the Buddha says, no, I don't hold that view. And then, okay, so the cosmos is not eternal. And the Buddha said, no, in the sense I don't hold that view. The cosmos is finite, infinite. Soul and body are the same. The soul and body, the soul is one thing, the body is another. So he's going through all these sort of views that people held at the time, and the Buddha is saying, no, I don't have that view. I'm not holding that view. The wise one uh, after death does not exist, or the wise person after death does exist, or neither exist nor not exist. And he answers no in all the same ways. And of course, he's a little disturbed that the Buddha doesn't hold any of these views And he, the Buddha explains, the position that the cosmos is eternal, and then for every other view that he mentioned, is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. It is accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever, and it does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, full awakening, and the unbinding of the heart. Then he asks, right, he's persistent, does Master Gotama have any position at all? A position, Vacha, is something that the Buddha, the sage, has done away with. What a sage sees is this, such as form, such as its origination, such as its disappearance. And he goes on for what in the tradition are called the five aggregates, just a more sophisticated way of talking about the body and mind. So what a a sage sees, basically he's saying what a sage sees um, is not some position that I hold to, but I see that sensation arises and then it ceases. Mental formation, like a thought, arises and it ceases. Perception, recognizing some sense experience that arises and then it passes away. That's what, that's like a definition of a wise person. They see elements of the body and mind arising and ceasing. Right? Just like you had dinner, some of you, maybe many of you, most of you had dinner a while back, whether here or at home. But actually, it wasn't you having dinner. There were sensations that arose and cease. There were thoughts that arose and cease. Moment of awareness of the mind knowing or seeing or feeling something 
And then that moment of experience, moment of knowing, ceased in order for the next moment of knowing to arise. But that's not how we experience it. We mostly are in the identification of thought, of an idea, like I'm eating and I like my food, or I'm eating and I don't like my food, or I'm eating and I better hurry up. So there's some story and the mind grasping the story, some identification and the mind grasping it, holding to it, being dependent on it. Buddha goes on to say, because of this I say, a, a wise person with the ending, fading away, cessation, renunciation, and relinquishment of all the construings, all the excogitations, all the eye-making, mind-making, obsession with conceit is, through lack of clinging, released. And then he asks, right, he's persistent. Well, whose mind is thus released? Where does this one reappear? Reappear does not apply. In that case, case, Master Gotama, he does not reappear. Does not reappear, Vacha, does not apply. Both does and does not reappear. The Buddha says, doesn't apply. Neither does, nor does not reappear. The Buddha says, does not apply. So again, he's frustrated. And the Buddha says to him, after he expresses his frustration, of course you are befuddled, Vacha, which is what the Buddha is calling him. Of course you're confused. Deep is this phenomenon, hard to see, hard to realize, tranquil, refined, beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. For those with no other views, other practices, other satisfactions, other aims, other teachers, it is difficult to know. That being the case, I will now put some questions to you. Answer as you see fit. fit. So he's going to give him a little mind experiment to help him understand. If a fire were burning in front of you, would you know that this fire is burning in front of me? And he answers, yes. And suppose someone were to ask you, this fire burning in front of you, dependent on what is it burning? Thus asked, how would you reply? I would reply, this fire, is in, this fire burning in front of me is burning dependent on the wood as its sustenance. And then the Buddha said, if the fire burning in front of you were to go out, would you know that? And he says, yeah. And suppose someone were to ask you, this fire that has gone out in front of you, in which direction from here has it gone, east, west, north, or south? Thus ask, how would you reply? And he says, well, that, that's a you know, stupid question. It doesn't apply. It was burning because of the sustenance, the wood, and then when that wood was burnt up or taken away, then it just ceases, Right? Having consumed that sustenance and not being offered any other is classified simply as out, unbound. So the Buddha says, even so, any physical form by which one describing the Buddha, you know, himself, this person or any person, right, would describe him in the same way. So what the Buddha is saying is that a, a person is described as this activity, like fire, dependent on the sustenance, right? Clinging, clinging to sights, clinging to thoughts, clinging to the dynamic of the body and the mind. So when that clinging goes out, ceases, it doesn't go anywhere. There's a passage in the Metta Sutta, some of you have chanted it, is not born again into this world. It's kind of a beautiful sutta about, you know, loving, sending your love out to all beings, the mighty, the small, the young, the old. May all beings be at ease, right? Sending it out. 
And then the sort of, as the Buddha's sort of giving this talk, he says, like the, the great culmination of this unconditional love and the sort of releasing of all views, all attachments, basically the awakening process is not born again into this world. So the fire goes out. So this is the, the connection between the releasing, the learning, learning what that mind is, not the mind that's not clinging to views, to opinions, and a fire going out. And how when we're holding to views, however subtle, however seemingly wholesome, like, oh, I'm so glad I went on this retreat. I don't know what the heck Mark's talking about, but I'm really glad I'm here. You know, to see that, to experience that as a kind of fire that's burning, the mind's dependence on understanding, on defining one's experience. So this not clinging to views, letting go of views, not being attached or dependent on views, not fixing on any views, is one of these four principles that um, Gill identifies as central in these early teachings of the Buddha. Not clinging to views. Tomorrow night I talk about the second one, which is um, avoiding central craving or understanding the limitations of sensuality. Some of you were in the Buddhist studies course this last fall, and we spent eight weeks looking at some of these teachings. And the last two, um, understanding the qualities of a wise person, which, just to give you a little heads up, being peaceful with what is, what's showing up, and the training to become a wise person, which is practicing being peaceful with what is. So we'll do those on Thursday night, those last two. But it's kind of nice not to cling to it as a doctrine. Okay, I got the essential core teachings of the Buddha. I'm going to write it down. Maybe I'll get a tattoo. And then it's like I just hold to it. But it's not about holding to it or building an altar around these teachings or billboard over common ground with these teachings, which is our inclination. I mean, literally, we have that inclination at some point, like, oh, it would be nice to put something on the building. Peace. But, you know, when you really kind of sit with that, it's like a should. You know, it's like, and that's not what wise people do. They're not like, they're, they're totally available to help and respond, but they're not putting out views, even seemingly really skillful views. Peace. <laughs> I bet everyone here, at least a couple times in our life, we felt that coming from somebody, that sort of, and on the surface it might have looked really nice, but it was more of underneath, the underneath feeling was like, I'm pretty sure I'm right, and here it is. <laughs> you know, here's the teaching that's right. Me loving you unconditionally, or me wishing you peace. The more we kind of look at how our mind operates, the more it makes sense to be quiet a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, like in the tradition, it's like people have to ask, Three times. And in fact, one of the traditions in monastic culture is, you know, if a monk or a nun is sitting here, I think it's happened here a couple of times, but we, we basically don't follow the protocol when we have nuns and monks here. But before they would speak, somebody would have to ask them to speak. The idea is, you know, you don't just talk because you want to talk. You wait till somebody says, you know, I'd really like for you to share a few things with, if you, you know, or you. And then a lot, like if you go to the monasteries in Asia, 
they, you, you hang out when the lay people are sort of the really devoted and, and uh, offering things because they start asking questions and the wise person will be provoked to start talking, right? Normally they're just not talking, but eventually someone will ask a question and it's like this karma arises. Like that question, you know, and maybe the sincerity or, or whatever of the person asking the question sort of strums a string in that human being and they start to share out of compassion. And then you get a little great Dharma talk that just arose out of the causes and conditions. But it's not like here, you know, where there's a Wednesday night talk and somebody, you know, comes up and gives a talk that they've been preparing for a couple hours or whatever. So uh, I'll be passing out, as I mentioned, just little verses from these, kind of representing these four core principles, not clinging to views, just understanding the pervasive habit the mind's habit of wanting that dependence on a view, feeling naked or vulnerable or exposed without some kind of fixed view, whatever it might be. And misunderstanding sense pleasure, basically, thinking it's more than what it is. No matter how many nice meals we have, It often feels like, gosh, when I get home and get something to eat, I'll be happy. Or when when that thing arrives from Amazon, that would be nice. (laughs) Or when I finally retire and have a lot of time to practice. So we have this idea that sense pleasure, even though it's never really made a difference in the past in terms of ultimate happiness, really getting where we wanted to get, so much so that we don't have to get there anymore. It's never really fixed us, saved us in the past. We have the sense that it will in the future. That's the misunderstanding of sense pleasure, which is the, this is the second core principle the Buddha taught in so many different ways. We're misunderstanding, honey, you're misunderstanding what sense experience can offer. He didn't say that there isn't a pleasantness to some sense experiences or an unpleasantness to others. He just said that it's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with real peace, real happiness, which is peace. And that it's thinking that sense pleasures will offer something lasting or meaningful is actually the cause for the opposite of peace, distress, or whatever that is that experience of not having peace. And then the last two again, how the Buddha describes his own experience of having woken up or being free or being wise, and what is the training that leads to that freedom, that wisdom, being a wise person. And so he talks about the way he describes a wise person is they're peaceful. That's the difference. A wise person is peaceful no matter the particular conditions or circumstances that are showing up for them. And the way they got there, I mean, there's a multiple, the multitude of practices, but the practices always have to do with being peaceful with what's showing up. It makes sense that the ends and means are in alignment. So if we want to be peaceful no matter the conditions, We start now in this moment with these conditions and being at ease, released with these conditions. We don't postpone it. It's not more complicated than that. If we want freedom from fear, we practice not being afraid with what's true or here now. If we want to live with an unconditioned love, We practice having unconditioned love with the ordinariness of the present moment, with whatever that is for us in this moment. And any quality, patience, forgiveness, 
gratitude, you know, whatever quality that to you seems like a winning ticket in terms of happiness, what happiness looks like, well then how about now? What, what actually is in the way of it being expressed here and now? So the handout are really some teachings about letting go of views um, that Gil pointed to. There are many more, of course, and just sort of a hodgepodge here. But, and I don't expect every of these passages to resonate with you, but hopefully one or two lines will. And then maybe commit those two lines or whatever to memory or make a little cheat sheet or put a circle around it. <laughs> So when you're, during the day, tonight, before you go to bed, even a couple times before you go to bed, tomorrow morning when you first get up, maybe every couple hours, maybe even more frequently, just bring the teaching to mind. The teaching that already seems like it has some resonance has an effect, a karmic effect, so that when it's repeated, the way of seeing, the way of being gets shifted slightly. Delusion gets interrupted. Clinging to views gets challenged in some way that there's another possibility, right? And you might have your own, too. Um, and maybe something I say tonight. But let's just, let me just read through these real quick. The first two um, here from the book of the way to the other shore it's a different collection, but one that's considered by scholars to also be an early discourse from an early discourse of the Buddha. Subdue greed for sensual pleasure. See renunciation as peace. Renunciation or non-dependence, you could say, as peace. Let there be nothing you take up or reject. Let what is, let what was in the past fade away. Make nothing of the future. If you don't cling to what is in the present, you can wander about calm. So the next one, they, is refer to, referring to sages, wise folks. They are not enemies of any doctrine, seen, heard, or thought out. Not making up theories, not closed down, not desirous. They are sages, wise, who have laid down their burden. One who is attached gets into disputes over doctrines. But how and with what would one dispute someone unattached? By not embracing or rejecting anything, a person is shaken off every view right here. And I already read, that was from the discourse I read at the beginning of the talk. So even views about views, like even thinking, okay, this is it. And it really has to do with this meaning-making part of the mind, which is a very useful tool that we can construct meaning with concept, with thought and ideas. But it's that psychological dependence on the meaning-making that can be abandoned. And it creates a direct and immediate experience of the heart being open, not constrained, not afraid. Like if I see myself a certain way, I'm afraid if you see me differently. I actually immediately become dependent. My well-being becomes dependent on what you think. And that's a problem. And if I instead tell myself I don't care what you think, right, then I'm I'm vulnerable to my own feeling that I do care about what you think. Right? I, that I'm threatened. 
So what's the alternative? This compassionate intimacy, you know, where the space where the meaning-making mind, the sort of gap between the meaning-making mind, that compassionate intimacy. We practice this in maybe a couple of the small groups today. We're just noticing how simple and available it is for the mind to intuit that space, that don't know mind. There's a story uh, from Ajahn Chah. Some of you have heard it. Um, Jack Kornfield tells it, and Ajahn Sumedho tells different, slightly different version of it. But evidently, there was a Western nun that was, everybody respected who was with Ajahn Chah for 10 years, living as a nun, you know, very austere monastic life in Thailand, and very respected by the local Thai people, even though she was a Westerner. And uh, the version of the story that Ajahn Sumedho tells, he's a well-respected Western Buddhist monk, one of the more senior Western monks. And uh, he had already founded a monastic community in England after many years of practicing in Thailand. And he was bringing back a Western woman. I don't know if she was already ordained, but wanted to, to ordain as a nun. And he was really looking forward to connecting this younger, newer uh, female practitioner with this wise elder who had been already in Thailand for 10 years. And when he shows up in Thailand, he finds out that the woman had disrobed, returned to the States, and then come back to Thailand as an evangelical missionary yeah. in Thailand, trying to convert the lay people you know, who were devoted to Ajahn Chah and, uh, and the other monks and nuns. And, you know, she was a very charismatic and convincing person. <laughs> and so um, Ajahn Chah, I mean, Ajahn Sumedha went, went to Ajahn Chah and said, how could this be? <laughs> no. And uh, Ajahn Chah just really knew how to pop that bubble, right? Because he, he was, had a fixed view. Buddhism is better. Evangelical Christianity is not the top of the heap. Buddhism, top of the heap. And Ajahn Chah just looked at him and said, maybe she's right. (laughs) You know, he's, you have to remember, he's like a very famous, at this point in Thailand, he's very famous, one of the most famous, most respected people in the culture, in the Thai culture. And uh, and that 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 immediately exposed in the people like the attachment to being right, you know that she's wrong, she made a mistake, we're right, this is the way. And it's just it's interesting because it does take a lot of work to put aside your duties for these five days and to sit in the morning to do your practice. And so we mistakenly to develop, to kind of find the energy to stick with the practice, we unfortunately used fixed views to motivate ourselves. You know, and we even get Buddhist paraphernalia to sort of Support the identity. I found a great place, a great practice. I'm on my way. This is really going to take care of me. And it does. That sort of identification can rally some energy so that we keep showing up. But you'll see it creeping in, like in conversations with the unbelievers, like when you go home for Christmas or holidays, you know, and they ask you about, or just really wanting your family to practice or your partner to practice or other people in your life, how good it would be. Oh, you should try it. Please come with me. You really like it. Giving Buddhist books as presents. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, sometimes it really helps. People you know, really appreciate it. But whether or not it lands well with the other person, it's really a 
time to, to take a look at any fixedness, any of the any dependence the mind has on being right in any way. Like the shock at the election. What what fixed views, what beliefs like that there's this natural progression towards you know more justice or whatever you might however you might describe it and then, oh no no it's not supposed to do that the human way, race will find a way to continue how do we know that we don't know i mean that's what we do know we know we don't know we don't know we don't know we might do like uh, i've done some things in my life that where I've made a mistake and I did something that I've never done before and something really bad happened and it could have been much worse. And uh, it's like after looking back and it's like, oh, I, I'm not the person who does that. But I did do it. And it's just sort of interesting to, to realize that who, we don't know who we are completely. We don't know all our habit energies or when conditions are just right, what might come out of our mouth or what action might get acted out. All we know is what we see in the moment. That's all we know. Oh, it's like this now. I'm saying this. I'm reacting in this way or I'm showing up in this way. That's what we know, what's showing up right now. And even that isn't self, it's just what it is. It's just what's being known. It's interesting in these, this early collection, um, the word faith is used, I think uh, in Gill's book he says only one time. And, and it was only in reference to like other traditions that talk about faith. And it's not so much that there isn't a place for faith and practice. I think actually there is. But it's not faith in an idea. It's really a deepening intuition experience, really, that it's actually safe for the mind to not be dependent on anything, on any fixed view. Not dependent on being right, not dependent, dependent on being good, but also not dependent on not being good. So just because we're not dependent on being good doesn't mean it's okay to be bad or to be against ideas. It's like you can get fixed on no fixed views. And you, you'll see this in, this in these kind of circles, like at Common Ground, like people are just looking for someone to express a fixed view and say, ah, <laughs> No fixed views. You're attached. You should be attached. Without ever recognizing that they're attached to catching people being <laughs> attached. Let me share a few more passages from the different verses that have uh, to do. This is one, actually, Gil's talking about. It's not in this collection, but it's uh, in the Middle Link discourses. But he puts it in the same category and somebody is aggressively asking the Buddha questions to explain it, you know, asking him to explain his teachings. And, uh, and the Buddha responds, such a teaching with which one does not quarrel with any, such a teaching with which one does not quarrel with anyone in this world, a teaching where a person who lives uninvolved with lust and who is free of doubt, worry, and craving for any existence, does not cling to concepts. This is what I teach. And like uh, one of the passages in the handout, it's like, how can you argue, how can you have an argument, a quarrel with someone who's not attached? It's like, and the Buddha said this once at another, in another place, you know, I don't, it's the world that quarrels with me. I have no quarrels, disputes with the world. It's kind of interesting, this, in terms of activism or 
trying to make the world a better place. And how to get involved with family life, like working out with your partner, how you're going to raise the kids, or what kind of car you're going to buy, if you're going to buy a car, or where you're going to live, or what kind of job, or what to do about racial injustice, what to do about global climate change, or what to do about this, or to to do about that. It's just interesting to explore, like don't dismiss that, or in that world you have to have a fixed view. I mean, it's, I think it's a pretty good argument that a, a lot of the divisiveness and hatred and injustice, in part at least, arises from people not, uh, be, precisely because of people being convinced they're right and therefore being dismissive of other people. It's like I think part of what allowed our president-elect to be elected is a a sizable portion, a big enough portion of the electorate felt something was off, like the being dismissed, being belittled as being wrong or being ignorant. They weren't so much dealing with particular issues and the facts around particular issues. But that being dismissed as being ignorant, they were pretty clear that that was wrong, that was inappropriate. And they were probably right. Anybody who's being dismissed, that shows the ignorance of the person dismissing them, the lack of understanding, the lack of wisdom of the people who have sort of painted them into a box or put them in put them down in some way. So, you know, that in the media they talk about you know, sort of the rejection of the establishment or the liberal elites or the, you know, academia. Or, but what, what it really is is a very powerful conviction that you dismissing me as ignorant is off. So I can't trust you. And actually, they were right not to trust that kind of being put down, being dismissed as being racist or ignorant, even though in a certain way there's some truth to that, but the fixedness on you know, any one of us who are willing to admit to being as caught in that sort of what we call the liberal elite view, when, we're, when our minds are identified, any of that dismissive, hateful, rejecting energy should be rejected. It's not something to be respected. It's not helpful. And so a lot of the divisiveness and the hatred and the bad policies that come out of it were all part of it. It really comes out of getting established in views. And the truth is, we don't know what this world, whether the world of our family or the bigger world, we don't know what it would look like if more and more people found a way to operate with less fixed views. We don't, we're not really sure what kind of world that would be. And we can begin to explore it in the little circles, like having a conversation with another person and just practicing having that conversation without being fixed, dependent on being right. Like what, what is that like to talk about, to engage, to respond without a fixed view? What's that like? Where we're really able then to be touched, to be sensitive, to be intimate with everything that's moving. And then whatever our response is, it's going to come out of that intimacy, that integration, that not... Because otherwise, I'm always hearing the other view in terms of this battle of kind of staying above water and keeping you down.
and this is Gill talking, he says, rather than teaching a doctrine that can be debated, the Buddha here teaches the importance of not clinging to concepts. In other words, he is not interested in doctrines as much as how people relate to them. Freedom isn't found through doctrines, though it does require not clinging to them. So then later, you know, the, the Buddha is talking to some of his monks about this point that he says, um, that I read a few minutes ago. He says, the Buddha says, and for the basis on which conceptual dif- di- differentiation concepts and conceptualizations occur, if there is nothing there to delight in, to welcome, or to be bound up with, this is the end to the obsessions with lust, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, ignorance, and the desire for becoming. Right. So if our mind isn't pushed around or reacting to any conceptualization, then there's no defilements, no unwholesome qualities in the mind. He goes on, he says, that is the end of resorting to weapons, arguments, quarrels, disputes, accusations, divisive tail-bearing, and false speech. This is how malicious, unskillful states cease completely. Right? So not delighting in any conceptualizations, or you could say not being confused by any conceptualizations. doesn't mean we're not thinking, we're just not confused by them. The assumption, this is Gil talking now, the assumption in this statement is that if one looks underneath concepts at what they represent and finds nothing to be attached to, then one would not have any obsessions or tendency towards unskillful states. This is described in terms of no longer getting involved in conflict. Right? And so this, you know, when we wonder how do we fix this world, well, we practice in the immediacy of our own experience, we practice a releasing of attachment to views we begin to challenge the idea we have that somehow we're dependent on that or wouldn't be safe, we wouldn't be able to function without it. Just end with this last part uh, from Gil's teachings, where he's because often we think, you know, where well, the Buddha taught the truth, and there are things you can point to, like well, he taught about karma, and he taught about rebirth, and he taught about being mindful, and we can sort of take it to mean that okay, so this is the truth. But really, the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering. That was how he articulated what he taught. He wasn't, it was the later Buddhist traditions that made a bigger deal about metaphysical truths. But when you look at the Buddhist teachings, he was interested in how the heart, how the grip in the heart is released. Not about truth, what's true, but a more functional, pragmatic, how does that grip, that ouch, that burden that we directly experience in the heart, how is that released? How does a human being realize the release of that burden, that crunch, that tightness? Gil writes here, rather than champion championing a religious truth, the Buddha focuses on how one gets into conflict and how one avoids it. Because one understands this, one confidently declares, those who have abandoned all judgments create no conflicts in the world. With his radical avoidance of all truth claims, the only thing the Buddha offers in this discourse is the possibility of of living without conflict. Right? 
not in conflict with the way it is or being peaceful with what is. That's what the Buddha points to, being peaceful with what is. All the practices, all the teachings are to illuminate the cause of the burden and illuminate the re- like how that release happens. And again, out of the four principles, the first two really describe that. Oh yeah, fixed views, the mind, the mind's dependence on some idea, some view, thinking that that, you know, or just out of habit, blind habit, thinking that it provides some kind of psych- psychological safety and misunderstanding sense pleasures, which I'll talk about tomorrow night. Let's just let go of the words for a few seconds. Appreciating the possibility of don't know mind, openness, a mind like space. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.